0: The room in which the boys were fed was a large stone hall with a copper at one end, out of which the master dressed in an apron for the purpose and, assisted by one or two women, ladled the gruel at mealtimes. The bowls never wanted washing. The boys polished them with their spoons until they shone again, and when they had performed this operation, they would sit staring at the copper with such eager eyes as if, they could have devoured the very bricks of which it was composed, employing themselves meanwhile in sucking their fingers most assiduously with the view of catching up any stray splashes of gruel that might have been cast thereon. Boys have generally excellent appetites and Oliver and his companions suffered the tortures of slow starvation for three months. And so at last they got so ferocious and wild with hunger that one boy darkly hinted to his companions that unless he had another basin of gruel per diem, he was afraid that he might some night happen to eat the boy who slept next to him. He had a wild, hungry eye, and they implicitly believed him. And so a council was held, lots were cast, for who should walk up to the master after supper that evening and ask for more, and it fell to Oliver. The evening arrived. The boys took their places. The master, in his cook's uniform, stationed himself at the copper. The gruel was served out and a long grace was said over the short commons. The gruel disappeared. The boys whispered to each other and winked at Oliver while his neighbor nudged him. Child as he was, he was desperate with hunger and reckless with misery. He rose from the table. And advancing to the master, basin and spoon in hand said, somewhat alarmed at his own temerity, Please, sir, I want some more. The master was a fat, healthy man, but he turned very pale. He gazed in stupefied astonishment on the small rebel for some seconds and then clung to the copper for support. The assistants were paralyzed with wonder, the boys with fear. What? said the master at length. Please, sir, replied Oliver, I want some more. The master aimed a blow at Oliver's head and shrieked aloud for the beadle. The board was sitting in some solemn conclave with Mr. Bumble, rushed into the room in great excitement and addressing the gentleman in the high chair said, Mr. Limpkins, I beg your pardon, sir, but Oliver has asked for more. There was a general start. Horror was depicted on every countenance. For more, said Mr. Limpkins. Compose yourself, Bumble, and answer me distinctly. Do I understand the ass more after he had eaten the supper allotted by the dietary? He did, sir, replied Bumble. That boy will be hung. That boy will certainly be hung. One of the most famous scenes in English literature, one of the most famous lines in in all London theatre, Oliver Twist A wretched orphan boy in Victorian Britain shamelessly asks a cruel church official for a few more boiled oats. Oliver approaches him and says, please, sir, I want some more. He approaches him and says, please, sir, I want some more. Friends, how do you approach? How do you approach God? When you, like little Oliver, fear the bigger boys, when you desperately hunger after something, when you, like Oliver, are, are reckless with misery, how do you approach God? Some here might say, I, I do not approach God. I'm an atheist, so I provide for myself. But friends, is that really true? You may not go often when your bowl in life is full, but I know you do when your bowl is empty. When fearful or hungry or, or wretched with misery, why is that? Could it be that you and I have an innate knowledge that there is a provider? Could it be that we have been wired for a divine relationship? After all, why does every civilization in need pray? How do you approach God. And for those of us who would assent not only to know the true and living God, but to regularly approach Him in in prayer, how do you approach? Is your prayer life akin to Oliver Twist going to Mister Bumble, small bowl in hand? Is it like that? Should it be like that? Are we to bother God with our every need? And what constitutes need if we are not Oliver's? Will we incur God's wrath if we are greedy? Will we hang if we go beyond our lot in life? How do you approach God? Well, for the answer, please do turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 11 and starting at verse 5. And once you are there, will you please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word? Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 5. And Jesus said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him? And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Please be seated. How may we approach God? Well, firstly, Jesus reminds us here that we may approach God as our heavenly Friend. First point this afternoon, approach God as your heavenly friend. Look at verse 5 again. He said to them, which of you who has a friend? Striking, is it not? The metaphor that first comes into Jesus' mind as he expounds upon his disciples' question about how to pray in verse 1 is a picture of going to a friend. It is hence a far cry from Oliver Twist, approaching his cruel enemy, Mr. Bumble. For rather, Jesus says most wonderfully here, that approaching God in prayer is like approaching one of our dearest friends. Because for the Christian, God is now our friend. Romans 5 verse 10, we were once God's enemies. We once deserved to to, to hang, as uh, as Mr. Limkin said to Oliver, but Romans 5.10, but now we have been reconciled to him through the death of his son. Friendship with God did not come cheap. His dear son was hung in our place. But as a result, we may enter the throne room of heaven now as his dear friends. Uh, Accordingly, though, we may rightly frown when some believers come to to, to God with, with a casualness as though informality in prayer was the the height of intimacy with God, though we may rightly grimace at a casualness which is all too common in Christian circles today, we must never stress the importance of reverence before God in such a way that denies his friendship. We must never stress the importance of reverence before God in such a way that denies his friendship. For the simple and yet staggering truth of the gospel, as we've thought about This afternoon is that God, who resides in utter holiness, may be our friend. Because Jesus, high in our place, we can be friends with God. And if you don't believe me, that that is what was happening at the cross. Just look at what happens at the end of this historical account. In Luke 23, as Jesus hangs and breathes his last, the temple curtain is miraculously torn in two. The holy place behind the curtain, symbolically where where God resided, where nobody dared approach, was ripped open such that Christians, those who trust in the Son, may now approach the Father. Approaching with confidence, knowing that all enmity with him is, is forgiven and forgotten forever. Approaching him in all circumstances, knowing that they may come to him even amid guilt. And depression and sadness and joy, and approaching him at all times. Indeed, as Jesus says here, even at midnight. For Christian through Christ, you have a friend that never sleeps. What a joy to approach God as our dear friend. Alternatively, what misery we endure if we reject Jesus' hanging. For if we do, God remains our enemy and the door of heaven remains locked. Indeed, let me be very clear with you all this afternoon that if you are not a Christian, this, this image in Luke 11 is not yours. If you have not turned to trust in Christ alone, then he cannot be approached as your heavenly friend. He remains your heavenly enemy. Not because God is a, is a cruel Mr. Bumble-like character, but because you being in the place of Olida. Have been too proud to come to his table, the table we enjoyed moments ago, refusing Christ the bread of life. My unbelieving friend, you are very welcome here. And we really hope you find us a friendly bunch. But we want you to know that you cannot be satisfied. You cannot have God as your friend if you reject what he has provided. And so let me implore you through Christ. And through Christ alone, approach God as your heavenly friend. However, there's more to this parable. For the very God may be our heavenly friend highlights not only an ability to approach God, but but also a manner in which we are to approach God. And so the rest of our first point, approach God as your heavenly friend. seek with a shamelessness that exceeds earthly friendship. Seek with a shamelessness that exceeds earthly friendship. Let's pick up again in verse five. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. When I was growing up, we'd often uh, camp in southern France. My dad would drive pretty much the length of the country, and then we'd, we'd hire a, a large tent, complete with a fridge and a, and a stove and proper beds. Come to think of it, it wasn't much like camping at all, <laughs> except for the canvas walls. Anyway, we'd have, um, we'd have a great time there. In the mornings, we'd, we'd walk down to the boulangerie with other families. I'd speak some terrible French, and then we'd talk in English over fresh croissants. In the evenings, we'd sometimes have other families over for dinner and we'd share the baguettes that we'd purchased in the mornings. And and, and around 10 o'clock at night, though, as the mosquito-repelling candles were blown out, there was a collective zipping sound. The once welcoming tent entrances were, were firmly clasped shut. Friendship set with the sun as parents helped their children into bed and everyone settled in for the night. And as a modern Westerner, that is it's probably the closest that I've ever gotten to this parable, where community life is so full of hospitality, where daily bread is shared with one another, and yet silence falls with a tent zip. But the people listening to Jesus here, the scene is very, very familiar. Indeed, so familiar that they really appreciate the great dilemma that Jesus poses here. For verse 6, a man's best buddy arrives, perhaps having driven the length of France, And he's tired and he needs food. And he's the height of rudeness not to feed him. And he demands wife, perhaps nudges him as as all good wives do, and says, you need to go and get some food for him. And yet, verse 5, it is now midnight. The man's family has already eaten. And just like the French boulangerie's bread, bread is only baked once a day. There's no horrible preservatives in the bread. There are no everlasting Twinkies in the cupboard. There is no food now. Accordingly, perhaps, while his buddy returns to the car, the man says to his wife, well, well, what if I go to our new friends next door? But his wife looks even more dismayed by this. She looks at the clock, horrified. The hands are at 12. That The family tents have been zipped up now for hours. Nobody is staying up late watching Netflix. There are no cell phones to, to text ahead. She thinks of the great embarrassment when babies and toddlers are woken up with her husband shouting for a baguette. She ponders what the neighbors will say the next day and the looks that she will get at the boulangerie from other bleary-eyed mothers. Friends, I can see that many of the ladies here are getting this painful social dilemma. For the rest of us, can you see the question that Jesus tees up? Effectively, he Yes. The need may be great, but who on earth has a friend that is okay with being woken up at midnight? The obvious answer in the culture then as it is today is that no earthly friendship runs that deep. Though the need for bread was real, the humiliation and the disgrace and the shame would have been far too much. And yet, Jesus runs on with the story, doesn't he? And he, and he pictures a scenario where the man does go seeking bread. Look at verse 8. I, I tell you, though the man's friend will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will arise and give him whatever he needs. Can you see? The man goes to his friend and he seeks bread and, and he gets bread. He comes home to his wife with, with a baguette lifted above his head in triumph. But the reason that this seeking ends in success is not because he sought him as a friend, but because he sought him with ananadian. That is the word in the Greek. That, that is the reason the bread was won. What does this word mean? Well, actually, it's quite a difficult word to translate, because this is the only time it is used in the New Testament But in other ancient texts, it's a very common word, a word which means a kind of combination between a boldness and a rudeness. ESV accordingly translates it impudence. We might more commonly call it shamelessness. And so we are to imagine, we're to imagine that the man's friend, not getting up to answer the doorbell with glee at another opportunity to say goodnight to his friend, but we are to imagine the man's friend getting up wearily and looking at his watch and almost applauding the audacity of it all. Man, do you know what time it is? He laughs to himself as he, as he sees his friend. Do you have no shame? Go on, help yourself. There's bread in the kitchen, take it all. Friends, what is applauded here by the Lord Jesus it is not a certain level or depth of friendship with God nor even, I think, a persistence with God, as some people say here, but rather a willingness to be ashamed before God, an acceptance that you have come to the end of yourself, that though you see that the bread is very much needed, that though you understand that it is absolutely mortifying to ask, that you admit there is absolutely nothing in your cupboard. And hence what is celebrated here is the nerve of an Oliver Twist. The audacity of an orphan to come before the serving hatch of God, bowl in hand and head bowed low. Please, sir, I am desperate. I am fearful. I am full of misery. I am hungry. I am an orphan. I have nothing. Please, sir, I want some more. Oliver grows pot of gruel in hand and he seeks with a shamelessness that exceeds even an earthly friendship never mind an earthly enemy and oliver oliver gets nothing because he seeks after a man who loves pride but we my friends we get everything because we seek after a god who loves such humility oliver gets nothing because he seeks after a man who loves pride But we get everything because we seek after a God who loves humility. Friends, God will never, God will never let those who seek after him, those who shamelessly admit their needs go without his bread. Now, it might not be the bread that we believe that we need. It might not be the sustenance that we have asked for particularly. But those who seek God will find what they need. If we come humbly, open-handedly to God, crying out to him with bold prayers, admitting that our cupboard is bare, that it is bare when it it comes to our own provision, that it is bare when it it comes to our own goodness, he will open up the rich storehouses of his grace. Verse 9, if we ask with audacity, it will be given. If we seek with shamelessness, we will find. If we knock with impudence, it will be opened. For James chapter 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so, my friends, how do you approach God? Could it be that actually you don't receive something you crave because you are too proud to admit your shame before him in prayer? Could it be that actually you don't have certain blessings because actually you have been too proud to ask for something that you think that you can provide all by yourself? Could it be that a a proud southern hospitality that says always be the giver, never be the taker, has rubbed off on your relationship with God? Could it be that you would rather stay? You'd rather stay in miserable sin than have the social embarrassment of admitting to other people in your small group that you really need their ongoing prayers because you are shamefully deficient in some area? And most alarmingly of all, let me address the unbeliever here again. Could it be that some of you sitting here right now would rather not feast in the house of Zion, in heaven as we've sung about this afternoon because you are unwilling to feed on the body and blood of Christ today? Because that would mean admitting that you are a beggar in need of righteousness just like me. Friends, prayers of petition are one of the greatest barometers of pride If you do not accept your need, you will rarely ask. If you are not willing to be shamed, you will rarely seek. If your relationship with God never goes deeper than any earthly friendship where you are just keeping up appearances with him, you will not receive what you most need. And so, friend, let me encourage you to grow in humility. Let me encourage you to frequently stare at how empty your bowl in life is such that you cannot help but pray. Such that you cannot help but seek your heavenly friend and say, Please, sir, I need some more. Pray with shamelessness that recognizes that you do not deserve to knock and that God has no reason to get up an answer but in the certain knowledge that He will feed those who seek with shamelessness. Approach God as your heavenly friend, seek with a shamelessness that exceeds earthly friendship. And yet there's another lens through which Christians are to see their prayer life that is not only through the lens of approaching a heavenly friend, but also of approaching a heavenly father. Second, far briefer point, approach God as your heavenly father. Approach God as your heavenly father. Verse 11, look with me. What father amongst you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if you ask for an egg, or give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In this second, far briefer uh, uh, parable or illustration, the focus is not on the one who prays, but on the one who is prayed to. If we ask as a heavenly friend, we will receive from a heavenly father. Now, for some of us, this this father image uh, may be painful. And I'm sorry if that is the case for you. I want to be very mindful that there may be some of you here who do not have happy memories of their fathers giving them good gifts, in fact, quite the opposite. But for the vast majority of us, Jesus' analogy here is not very difficult to track with. For most earthly fathers, whether Christians or not, are good at giving gifts. For as Jesus says, even though many earthly fathers fail, most delight to give the good and work hard not to bestow the bad. It is so evident that that Jesus kind of jokes about it here. I trust that if you're a father here, you get that. For me, I find Jesus' food pitch is very obvious. When we were in England, I often loved to come home from time to time to Benjamin and, and to Lydia and Sam with, with fish and chips. They would not unwrap the newspaper to discover snake and chips. Likewise, now we're in America. Take our kids out to McDonald's for breakfast. I'll, I'll smile at them as I, as I present to them some egg McMuffins, not scorpion McMuffins. Jesus' point is, is hilariously obvious. If evil fathers long to give good lifts, how much more? with a good heavenly father. Yes, friends, at first we approach as orphans, like like Oliver, as spiritual strays with no hope. But through Christ, we are adopted into his family. So that verse one, we may start our prayers, Father. And so we are to pray in the wonderful, wonderful knowledge that, that not only are we his children, but that God longs to give us good gifts. And so can you see, friends, we get to pray not not only for what we need, but we get to pray for what is good. If we have been given a, a basic bowl of gruel, God will not say to us like Mr. Bumble, what? How dare you ask for more? How dare you ask for better food? No, just like us, if we are earthly fathers, God is a father who absolutely delights in the process of us asking, and the process of him giving. And so, friends, what a spur. What a spur to prayerfulness here. The fact that we can make the God who gives to us uh, pleased by by asking for even more. Doing so in the knowledge that God, who is our good father, knows everything that we need and longs to provide good things. And so let me encourage you. Ask him. Make this week a week when you end prideful self-sufficiency and instead regularly carve out time for petition, knowing not only that you may receive, but knowing that God absolutely delights to give. And yet as we meditate upon this fatherly-like aspect of God in prayer, we must remember that because God is a good heavenly father, that not all our prayers will be answered in the way in which we might like at the time. Indeed, that is why we are to read this passage with prayer on prayer with great care, friends. Because sadly, many false teachers in the church have abused these words of Jesus, ripping them out of the context of fatherhood so that they may say that that God must give us everything that we ask for. They employ verse 9, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to say that, that, that God will give you every desire. And so if you do not get... There must be something wrong with your seeking or knocking ability. Friends, that is a cruel and terrible way to read the Bible and a cruel way of shepherding God's people. Yes, God longs to give generously as a loving father and yes, he longs to give good gifts to his children, the gifts that go beyond salvation and sanctification. When we ask, he may delight to give us greater health and more physical beauty and a new job, and a faster car, and we may pray for such earthly blessings. It is not wrong to enjoy such good earthly gifts, but we are not to conclude that if our Father does not give them that we are somehow not good enough children, or worse, that he is an unkind Father. For just like every father, sometimes he does not give us the things that we really want because he knows better what we need. This past Friday, it was our Sam's fourth birthday, and the day before, we went looking for toys. He went into a camping shop, he picked up a massive Swiss army knife, and he said with his big brown puppy dog eyes, oh, Dad, please, please, gonna get this. And needless to say, he was not tearing open his birthday presents with it the next day. But you know, sometimes, sometimes that no is far harder and more painful for us to accept as adults. Because sometimes after persistent prayers we think surely, surely the gift of marriage will be far better than this gift of singleness. Surely this gift of singleness will be far better than this gift of this marriage. How is infertility a gift when children are so good? How is redundancy a gift when I need to provide? How could this coronavirus be used for good when I could be at church if it were gone? Friends, It is at those painful times in prayer, when we ask but do not receive what we desire on earth, that we must most remember that we approach God as a loving heavenly Father, one who works all things for our good, even beyond what we can see with earthly eyes. Friends, we approach God as our Father. That means that we get the joy of asking, but also the joy of accepting that He knows best, even if It is a know this side of heaven. Moreover, as we reflect upon the fact that we approach a heavenly father, we must also remember that we ask for a gift that is not only guaranteed, but a gift that is better than anything else on earth. And so final point, just as we close this afternoon, approach God as your heavenly father, gain a gift that exceeds earthly fathers. Gain a gift that exceeds earthly fathers' gifts. Verse 13 again, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see what Jesus reminds his disciples of here? He reminds them that although God gives every good gift on earth, because we approach a heavenly Father, he is uniquely able to give us a heavenly gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, upon first reading, that gift might not sound like much to you, the gift of the Holy Spirit might not sound as exciting as the gift of a new car or as necessary as the, as the promotion or the holiday and, and certainly not as desirable as that's marriage or children. But friends, that the gift of the Holy Spirit it is the gift of God's very presence in you. And hence, he is a gift that allows us to pray how God wants. We'll just look at the Lord's Prayer in verses 1 to 4 just before our passage today. For how can one pray that the Lord's prayer without him? How can you keep reveling in that childlike joy of calling God Father, verse two, without the gift of his Holy Spirit who confirms to us and keeps confirming to us that great adoption? How can you pray that the wonderfully liberating line, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Without the gift of his Holy Spirit, he who helps recognize that our lives are not about our glory, but about God's. He who helps us to remember that this life is not about earthly kingdoms, but heaven to come. How can you pray verse three? Give us this day our daily bread, a line which beautifully sets us free from all of tomorrow's worries. Without the gift of his Holy Spirit, he who reminds us that God will always provide. How can you pray, verse 4, forgive us our sins without the gift of his Holy Spirit, he who assures us that despite our many sins, we are delightfully forgiven? How can you move on from painful situations and find joyful reconciliation with other people and enjoy sinners even in our church, praying, Father, forgive all who are indebted to us without the gift of the Holy Spirit? He who can transform every broken relationship and an incapacitating bitterness as he works, grace and humility in us. And perhaps most wonderfully of all, how can he pray confidently They align leaders not into temptation without the wonderful gift of his Holy Spirit? He who enables us to say no to destructive sin. He who can help us mortify the, the, the miserable old self. He who will make us better spouses and friends. He who will give us the amazing joy of seeing our own desires and motives and loves confirmed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, what an amazing gift. What an amazing gift the Holy Spirit is. If you do not know God, pray for that promised gift. God will give you his spirit. And if you do not know God, if you do know God already... Pray that you may experience the gift of the Holy Spirit more and more and more, such that you may enjoy being godly, knowing a greater sense of his closeness, knowing that you are already adopted into his family, knowing that wonderfully you may call him Father. And friends, may you go to him hungry, spiritual bowl in hand, not with all the nervous of an, of an orphan Oliver who approached a tight-fisted earthly master, but may you go to him hungry, spiritual bowl in hand with all the shamelessness of a loved child who approached a generous heavenly father. Our time is up. Let us approach him now. Gracious God in heavenly, Father, we thank you that we can come to you and call you just that, our Father. Father, we thank you for the amazing privilege of being your children and so your friends too. We thank you that we approach you boldly, no longer as your enemies, but as your friends because of Jesus. Father, we pray for any here who have not accepted that glorious truth. And Father, how, oh, how we thank you that you are good, a generous heavenly Father who longs to give good things. Father, would you help us, therefore, to be bolder? Would you help us, therefore, to be more humble? And so help us to delight most of all in the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. May we keep in step with him, see his influence in our lives more and more as we live day to day as your children. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.